This is your host, Pete Moore, and I am pleased and humbled to announce the launch of my one and only book titled Time to Win Again, 50 Takeaways from Playing and Watching Team Sports to Guarantee Your Business Success. Those of you who know me personally and anyone who listens to Halo Talks for any length of time know that I am an avid sports fan and a big believer in the value of team sports. What I've seen over the past 25 years helping businesses grow, raising capital, being an entrepreneur myself, and coaching and mentoring executives in the sector, it's the lessons learned on the field perfectly apply to business. Entrepreneurs, executives, managers, you name it. Every company that's a strong company has got a good team. It's a quick read. There's awesome illustrations in there from our good friend, Mark, at Cruelty Free Cartoons. If you go to integritysq.com, enter your email address, and we will send you information on the book and the Entrepreneur's Survival Kit as well. Be great. Take names. Go Halo. This is Pete Moore on Halo Talks. I have the pleasure of having Sharon Equity Research, William Blair out of Chicago. We were able to be on a speaker series with Rick Caro uh, earlier this year and wanted to further educate our Halo Talks audience on what the real public markets look at uh, when it comes to companies and have Sharon give us some of her views on what the future will look like. So Sharon, welcome to our Halo Talks. Thanks for having me, Pete. Great. So from a standpoint of just educating people on, you know, what you do every day when you wake up in the morning, uh, business related, uh, and tell us, you know, how you think about what the future looks like and how to price companies. Um, you know, if you can just give us a little primer. Yeah, well, that's a big question. So, <laughs> I mean, as, as with, I think everybody's uh, profession, no two days are the same, right? But in a nutshell, we're trying to analyze business models, um, ascertain some sort of fundamental value for that business model. And it, you know, if it's publicly traded, that uh, equates to a buy or sell on a stock. Um, and you know, one of the interesting dynamics, I think, that is often um, overlooked in the equity markets from those that are outside of our ecosystem is just why some companies get you know, an X valuation, whereas others get a Y. And, you know, growth is really important in terms of the way that investors look at valuations. And that's why you'll see some companies get, you know, valued on a multiple of sales. And you'll have other companies that are trading at an EBITDA multiple or an EPS multiple, right? Because with the multiple of sales, you're looking at eventual EBITDA, hopefully, right? That's what's mm -hmm. discounted in there. Um, when you're looking at EBITDA, it's typically a, a more mature company. But the growth, uh, the growth dynamic tends to be, you know, where the higher valuations come in and, and the more disruptive companies. Yeah. So you take a look at some of these companies that have gone public in, you know, whether it's a SPAC transaction or it's um, uh, electric vehicle, autonomous truck that as a as a driver on the 405 scares the shit out of me that there might be somebody in a in an 18 wheeler that doesn't have a driver in it um it's controlled by computers and those are valued at you know 25 times you know 2025 revenue you know who who starts with the financial model um do they send it to you and then you guys kind of sensitize it properly 
or, or, um, you know, are you, are you so deep in a market that, you know, you, you kind of come up with your own projections, you know, based off of the company's business model? Yeah. Well, I, well, personally speaking, I'm always coming up with my own projections, right? I mean, I, I don't know how I would uh, earn, earn my bread every day if I didn't come up with my own projections. Cause ultimately, you know, for the companies that are already public, most of those companies give guidance. Right. And so they'll say, we're expecting a billion dollars in revenue or $2 in EPS. And at that moment, when that is said, the assumption is that that in a purely efficient market is embedded in the valuation. So what you're really looking for then is where's the surprise, um, you know, better or worse than what the management is, is guiding to. So I think any analyst worth their salt is doing their own modeling and trying to figure out really where the risks lie and where the opportunities are. You know, as companies uh, go public and then, you know, they're obviously answering to uh, people like you to say, hey, this is what we did. And, you know, here, here's why this didn't happen. Or, you know, we had an upside surprise, which some companies, I think, live by trying to provide upside surprises or, you know, sandbag their guidance. You know, for, do you feel as if companies are appropriately managing quarterly earnings and also long-term growth? Or when you're a public company, do you kind of have to maybe make some more trade-offs that you don't have to do as a private business? I certainly think as a public company, there's more of a balance between investing for the future and harvesting profitability, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, the the go-go growth at any cost is, is usually best done <laughs> private uh, and then start to see some improvement on the profitability metrics, you know, once a company goes public. Um, but I, I don't know beyond that, that there's, um, there's anything I would, I would really add. Okay. Yeah. So, so some companies, you know, like in, in the health club industry, we always hear of, uh, you know, monthly closeouts. That's kind of, you know, what, what most health club operators talk about um, on, on private companies held by private equity firms, they're usually talking about annual growth, um, yeah. you know, and, and then in the public markets, it's either, you know, they've got a, a, a ticker uh, that's going off in the lobby showing you what the stock price is, which I don't know if that's good or bad from uh, employee morale. I guess, you know, pretend that the, you know, the LED screen doesn't work when the stock's going down, I guess, and keep it up. <laughs> I do think ultimately, I mean, as, as a management team, you need to keep your eye on the long term, right? I mean, yeah. we in the financial markets are going to look at the quarters because we always say every quarter, you know, four quarters make up a year, four years make up, you know, four years. Um, <laughs> but uh, but you, you, if you're sacrificing your long-term goals to reach a quarter, I mean, that's not a win for anybody, right? So ultimately, management should be playing the long game, um, whether they're private or public. Um, but I think in the public markets, like if you had, let's just say Pete's fitness clubs had a great new initiative that was going to take your margins down, you know, 10 percentage points, probably best to do that over a multi-year period, as opposed to just announcing to the public markets, Hey, guess what? You know, our margins are going down 10 percentage points next year. I mean, that would be, that would be something in the private markets, maybe you just rip off the bandaid and you do it. Right. Right. Um, but unless there's a strategic kind of competitive necessity for you to do it publicly, it behooves you to spread that out and try to create more predictability for your investor base. Yeah. So, so in, in a nutshell, we're basically managing the long-term growth and the profitability of the company, but, but really having our, our equity stakeholders that, that we've decided 
that we're going to be a publicly traded company that we basically have to manage their expert expectations and and what they think about what we're doing and yourself versus the you know the the luxury of having a private company but not the liquidity of um, of being able to do acquisitions with with currency or raise money much easier uh, than than in a private deal. So just wanted to kind of cover those, those trade offs. Um, you know, as as change, changing gears, if you take a look at um, the home equipment business, and you know, it's been around for you know 35, 40 years at this point. Um, you know, whether it's a total gym commercial that you know, changes slightly every five to 10 years, or it's just the same people that they had on there with Christy Brinkley and um, Chuck Norris. And then you see all these new competitors come along um, in a lot of industries that I've been a part of, you know, you, you've got, you know, somebody saying, Hey, I'm going to be the next Uber. Or I'm going to be the next Peloton. You know, typically you're not actually. Um, so how do you kind of calibrate market uh, euphoria with, you know, your history of saying, you know, look, the first to the market actually gets a lot of the spoils. Um, and it's going to be really hard to either replicate or displace, or how do you kind of look at it with a, you know, with a white piece of paper all the time? Yeah. It's interesting because I, I don't know that I think the first to the market always gets the spoils. I mean, I get mocked for having a Yahoo email and I right, right. have AOL emails, right? So I'm, t- I'm telling you how old I am. Fair here. point. Yeah, same here. Um, than- and I, I remember when Netscape went public. So that really makes me a dinosaur. Um, but I, I think first mover advantage is important, but it's only important so long as you can maintain your flywheel and maintain your innovation mm-hmm. gap relative to competition. I think any any industry that's worth being in, once you open up the kimono and you let everyone see how good your business is, there's going to be more competition, right? Right. right. And so it's just always that element of, can you stay ahead of a more competitive backdrop? And I don't think that matters if you're looking at SaaS or fitness clubs or, you know, restaurants, it's, it's kind of all the same animal. Um, I think mm-hmm. there are certain um, aggregators that get a flywheel effect a little bit more easily, and that's a little bit more sustainable. But most of what we talk about involves actually, you know, in some way touching the consumer, whether with a product or an experience. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that that's just inherently more difficult because there are so many more opportunities to disappoint the consumer. And I think that's something that, you know, if I went on Expedia today and I got a hotel room at Marriott and the hotel room wasn't great, I don't really blame Expedia. I blame Marriott, Right. Yeah. And so the aggregators in many ways don't don't face any of the pain <laughs> that the actual consumer brands do. And I think it's especially tough, you know, in fitness because there's there's so much opportunity to both impress your consumer, but also, you know, to, I think, add elements of friction that the consumer then, you know, finds the next thing that they're interested in. Yeah. So as the... Um... Yeah, I I remember when Netflix went went public as well. So I'll, I'll date myself there. Um, you know, when you look at the speed of technology innovations and and new versions of applications coming out, or you know, a new technology that we never heard of, like now people are talking about, you know, fitness holograms because uh, of something that you know Zuckerberg you know said a couple of days ago, and it's like okay, like we're just trying to actually get cycling instructors physically back into a club and now we're talking about you know hologramming people from you know somewhere around the country um so, so does the speed of innovation sometimes 
make you say like, oh, this, it's like these companies must be exhausted trying to like out innovate each other? Or do you think, hey, all this innovation, you know, at some point the winners are going to be established or is, are we just in a cycle of constant, you know, upgrades and improvements and yeah, I don't know. Uh, so I'm a little bit exhausted sometimes when I think about the technology cycle. I feel like there's a difference between consumer-led innovation and just innovation for innovation's sake. Like, I, I don't know anybody who's ever sat around saying they wanted a hologram of, of somebody in, in their house, you know, doing fitness. So, you know, but I do hear, you know, consumers say like, look, I'd like to have more variety in my fitness, you know, regimen and maybe connected fitness along with a studio or a gym provide me that. So I think, you know, solving real problems is something that sometimes um, tech doesn't do well. I mean, mm -hmm. tech sometimes just creates these consumer need states that nobody actually ever had. And then, um, you know, we get kind of off on a, a tangent, but I do think kind of going back to connected fitness, I do think it, you know, going back to consumers really liking um, variability uh, mm -hmm. or variety in their, um, in pretty much all aspects of their life. I mean, that's going to be the big question with the new, um, the new era of fitness at home is does it create enough variety and variability that the life cycle of that product is longer than, you know, historical products in that arena. Yeah, no, it's a, that, that's a great point. Um, switch, switch into a subject and, and it's been kind of top of mind here over the last several weeks is we've been talking to a lot of groups uh, on the health club side and, and operators, and they tend to not know enough about their competition. You know, they don't know what the current promotion is. They don't know, how many square feet the other club has. They don't know what the amenities are. They don't know who the top salespeople or top group of exercise instructors. So we're trying to harp on, you know, like you got to research your three to five mile radius better and you got to really be the expert. You got to know everyone that's, that's doing anything in, in that halo sector at large. Could you talk for a minute, just as an analogy, you know, when you look at a company and you put out an initiating coverage report, you know, how much work goes into a coverage report on a company? How much do you feel like you need to know, you know, everything you could possibly know? And as an example, like in the health club industry, you know, how much, how important is it for you also to understand what's going on in the healthcare industry and what's going on with the Medicare? And, you know, you can kind of build up this research that gets pretty broad, but then you really become an expert. So maybe give us a little bit of how you as a, a top research analyst thinks about research versus what other people should think about it. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, I don't like to be wrong. So because I don't like to be wrong and the market's going to tell me if I'm right or wrong every day, I try to really overarch, you know, on the research side and, and know as point. much as I can. So at least, you know, if I am wrong, I felt like I had a foundational aspect to why I had uh, the opinion and, and the recommendation I had. Um, and I think, you know, what goes into all of that is you, you, you talk to management. So that's this kind of step one, right? You never should initiate on a company without talking to a management team. But then you're trying to peel back the onion. So you talk to competitors in the arena, the area. You, I mean, a lot of managements are well-known within their industries. You get more opinions on them. Um, you know, how, um, how long-term is their, their thinking in terms of the way they strategically look at the business? Um, how defensible is the mode around their business? I mean, if I, if you opened up Pete's Cycling and then I, I talk to, um, you know, someone next door and they're like, oh, I'm going to do everything Pete's Cycling does tomorrow and I'm going to do it $5 less per class. 
I'm going to be worried about taking you public, Pete, you know? So, I mean, I think all of that goes into the equation, but ultimately the best companies tend to be masters of their own destiny, right? The companies that grow markets that are real leaders that are addressing um, real consumer needs days that for some reason were not addressed well previously. I think those are, are really interesting companies as well as those that just keep a narrow lens on who their customer is. I feel like there are so many companies that want to be everything to everybody. And inevitably they leave some people behind because they're just too broad, like an inch deep and a mile wide. Whereas the brands that really know who they're going after um, tend to, to get that top of funnel, you know, much wider. Yeah, no, that, that, that's great. Uh, assessment. I like the fact that you just don't want to be wrong. And that, yeah, and probably like- in our sector, that's probably the leading uh, indicator on how people feel like, Hey, was I right or wrong about this month or uh, about what was going to happen? So, you know, po- post COVID, do you feel companies are, are better set up now for success? You know, maybe they've kind of reanalyzed their expense structure. Um, any, any thoughts on, you know, what the future might look like on working from home, or it seems like there's a big urge for people to get back into the office, which I agree with. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I I feel like every day you hear another CEO come out and say everyone back, you know, by Labor Day. And, and so I think there are some sectors like the financial sector that I'm in that are at the laggards, but I I feel like we're in the not too distant future going to largely be uh, more or less back at the office as a nation, hopefully knock on wood, some sort of you know, new outbreak. Um, you know, I do think that, um, you know, as, as I think about the fitness space specifically, there are, there's kind of um, two different sides here, right? I feel like the consumer wants to get back to quote unquote normal as fast as possible. Right. I mean, if you look at the restaurant industry, restaurant sales eclipsed 2019 in both April and May, and they'll probably do so again in June, Right across, you know, 83% of the restaurants that are left. It's not too dissimilar in the fitness space where, you know, 15 to 20% of fitness facilities went away. I think the question will be on the labor side, especially for studio-based businesses, right? I mean, labor is just really, really tough. Mm -hmm. Um, And it's... um, it's probably the toughest labor market that that I've seen in 20 years of doing this. Mm -hmm. And then from a... um from an inflationary standpoint, I, I feel, you know, when, when anytime I look at a, an invoice or even like go to DoorDash, I think they might be padding it, but you know, there's all these different charges here. There are new restaurant charges here. And you know, you, you start to, you have to actually look at your restaurant bill. They're adding credit card charges now. And yeah. That never yeah. Happened. So, yeah. So there, so there's like either embedded inflation or there's embedded fees in order to, you know, mask inflation. So you know, where, where would be places to invest in, you know, in, in what you cover that, you know, maybe good places if there's more inflation or maybe groups that could take more fees and just kind of mask it as inflation? Yeah. Well, I think, um, look, I mean, strong brands usually have pricing power, right? So um, if you're a strong brand in any sector, you're probably going to be able to take price to at least help upset inflation. I do think companies that we're in um, the fortuitous position of not having to furlough employees in 2020. And I know that was easier said than done. Um, mm-hmm. They face less hiring pressure, you know, here yeah. in 2021 as demand surges back. So they're not as crunched, you know, when it comes to that labor pressure. But I mean, there's no easy answer, but I think any operator will tell you that sales 
will solve a lot of problems, right? Yeah. So um, if if in the if in the fitness space, if it's a laggard of what we're seeing in some other earlier opening industries, then um, inflation will be a small worry because the revenue will come back pretty quick. Gotcha. So in in closing here, do you have any good uh, quotes that that you uh, that you live by or oh, uh, any anyone uh, that, that comes to mind or things that you say? No, but I, I really, really miss um, getting my morning coffee every day on the way to work. <laughs> so I can't, <laughs> I can't wait to start off my day with a big old cup of not homemade coffee. Start your day with a cup of coffee and don't be wrong. That's going to be the don't quote be yeah. that we're going to be put on there. Awesome. Well, great to see you again. We're going to get this out over the summer. Um, look forward to seeing you at, at future trade shows. Great. And uh, if we can be helpful with any uh, research on the ground. Um, you know, happy to help frame your uh, your collection of information at any time. Thank so, you. thank you. I hope this was useful for you guys. Yeah, awesome. Appreciate it. Take Have care. a great day. Bye Bye-bye. now.